Welcome to the Literature in Laws podcast. I'm Judah. And I'm Daniel. We are brother-in-laws who love reading books and discussing them. We analyze the merits of books for their strengths, weaknesses, and outlook on the world. Thank you for joining us on this literary journey. Hey guys, welcome back to our second podcast. Um, Judah and Daniel here, and we're really excited to be discussing a book that's actually a favorite of ours, Till We Have Faces by C.S. Lewis. Um, Daniel, can you share a little context, how you came across it? So this book, I had heard from my brother in school that when he had to read it for school, um, the teacher didn't allow them to read ahead. And I did not want a book that I couldn't know the end of the story. So I started, I just read it three grades ahead of time and reread it again as we were prepping for this podcast, blown away with how much I didn't get that first time. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I I read it for the first time about two years ago. I had my resident uh, assistant RA here on campus at Liberty University told me, he's like, you have to read this book. It's a little slow at first, but the ending will knock your socks off. And it did. So I'll give you a brief overview of the plot, everyone. And then we'll dive into um, our rating, discussing it, the literary Literary analysis as well. well, And then uh, we'll dive into the theme. So that'll be fun. But yeah, as for the plot... Um, The book is incredibly complex. It's told from a first-person perspective um, from a character um, that we're going to pronounce as Orval because that's how Daniel's audiobook pronounced it. So this character Orval is growing up in something akin to some sort of ancient Roman um, kingdom. The Kingdom of Gloam is what it's called. It's a very small kingdom, actually rather poor in comparison to the other kingdom, especially because of all the problems that they're facing. So she has um, her sister, Redival, uh, who's just flighty like the wind, loves boys, that sort of thing. And they're growing up. Uh, a man that they call the fox comes um, from Greece as a slave. He was kidnapped by soldiers brought in. And the king is hoping to use him eventually once the king has a son to train the son in the wise Grecian ways. But until then, he uses the fox to help teach his daughters because... Um, The daughters are useless, but maybe this will be some way to make use out of them. The fox teaches the daughters. He becomes their mentor, one of their closest friends. He's much, much older than them. Um, And the king takes a wife from another kingdom. She gives birth to this beautiful young girl named Psyche, but she dies very quickly after. So the book centers around these three sisters, Orville, Redival, and Psyche, and this guy Fox, their mentor, and the king, their father. The king doesn't want very much to do with any of the daughters, but... What happens is as the book progresses, Psyche is just treated as this almost perfect figure. Um, The townspeople love her. She's thought to maybe have these sort of healing powers uh, just because um, she's so beautiful. She's so perfect. She has such grace. Um, And the fox absolutely adores her. He's not a worshiper of the gods because he's from Greece. He thinks every man is equal. He has very... Uh, progressive ideas for the culture at the time, but even he compares her to the hypothetical gods because she's just that incredible. Um, But the priest of Ungit of the land within Gloam comes to the king and says basically that, Daniel, you want to interject? Go ahead. I was going to say Ungit is the another name for the Grecian goddess Aphrodite. Right. But Ungit is very cruel. Um, 
Uh, she takes sacrifices. They sometimes have to sacrifice men to her. Uh, she needs sacrifice in order to be appeased and help the land um, prosper. Um, but the land is not prospering. Uh, everyone is getting sick. Uh, there's a famine in the land. Um, lions are coming and tearing up the last of the, the sheep and the goats and the cows. And um, interestingly enough, the priest of Gloam comes to the king and says, basically, you're going to have to kill someone, um, this this traitor in the land, per se, um, who's committed heresy against the gods in order to absolve the land of its um, problem. So um, they sort of cast lots, and eventually the lots land on Psyche um, because she's being treated as a god, and the priests don't like that. So the lot falls upon her, and she's the one that's established as needing to be killed. So Psyche's death is not just a normal death, uh, like where you would slit a throat, for example. She is taken to the mountain where the god of the mountain is going to take her. She'll die from exposure or being torn apart by wolves or something like that, starving to death. Um, and Orville is absolutely wrecked. Her king, The king makes a great show of sadness, but he's really just trying to save his own skin. He doesn't really care that much about his daughter. Um, uh, and Orville tries to... Uh, rescue her sister but she can't she's just brokenhearted um but psyche goes to it willingly she thinks it maybe if this can help people then uh, then then she'll go to it but the idea of the god of the mountain taking her is a combination of uh and this is we'll talk about later in the theme but it's not supposed to be just a cruel killing necessarily he's called a beast but he's also called a lover there's there's a lot of different ideas that are tossed around there so yes orville goes up the mountain to try and find the remains of psyche uh she's not there she's going with the soldier bardia at this point um uh she decides to cross a river and look for her so it looks like there was some remnant or something of her so she decides to go look and uh lo and behold her sister is not dead she finds her sister clothed in just like white rags um, but her sister looks more radiant than ever before. And her sister shares this incredible story of the God of the mountain taking her away, um, not in a painful manner, but he takes her to this castle and she becomes his queen. Uh, it's a beautiful story. Um, Orville thinks she's absolutely insane, but uh, Psyche tries to convince her. She's like, taste, taste, the, wa- taste the wine, look at the castle. Um, and Orville doesn't see any of it. It's not there. Psyche explains to Orville that she's not allowed to see the god's face. He comes to her in the night and they they make love, but um, she's not allowed to see this god's face. So Orville thinks this god must be incredibly cruel. She tries to convince her sister to come back, but Psyche won't. So later on, Orville takes one other trip. She says, I must break this hold over Psyche. So she basically says, Psyche, I'm going to kill myself unless you take this light and go to the god and expose him at night to see who he really is because she's heard from the fox that he must be a cruel man who's kidnapped her and convinced her that he's good or from Bardia that he's actually this god beast. But regardless, he must be a horrible thing. Um, So she exposes the god and that is where the story continues to develop. Um, Not only was – go ahead, Daniel. It ends with Orval is looking across the river because she had left. Um, and she sees Psyche light the lamp and hide it and then expose. And then she knows that this, she saw the person and then the entire valley just blows up with lightning, lightning splits apart trees. She can't go to Psyche and she just hears Psyche 
slowly, her voice fading into the distance. Right. Weeping. Yep. And so then the rest of the book is kind of outworking the consequences of that pivotal moment. Yeah. Because Orville is essentially like, oh no, what have I done? And one important thing to know is that for a brief moment, Orville caught a glimpse of this supposed castle that was in um, in the forest, but then she convinced herself that it was just a dream. Um, so that's the plot of the book. It's incredible. There's, I mean, obviously a lot more happens after that, but that's, that's the setup for the ending, basically. Can I talk about the Go. literary style of Lewis here? Go for it. Um, this is... By far, I think the best use of first-person point of view across any book I've read. Lewis is writing through the voice of Orville. Or, or Orville is setting out from the very beginning. I am writing this book as a complaint against the gods. Right. Exactly. And so she is raging a lot of times in the moments of narrative. She gives her explanation of what is going on and how the gods have been so cruel to her in these specific moments, whether it was when Psyche was taken away up the mountain or whether it was when she just glimpses this tower and then she thinks it's just the fog. She blames the gods for not giving her more of a sign. Right. And so you see this complaints against the gods that she's forming. And then Lewis actually uses the fact that Orville is writing this complaint against the gods to show her character growth in book two, which is actually her attempt to edit the first book yeah. before she actually dies. Right. Because she had a change of perspective. So it all goes together to show the wealth of the character of. Orville and just the growth that she has over the course of the entire book. Um, very well done. Yeah. No, it's definitely, it's very interesting. I'll read the, I'll read the quote from the book that Daniel's referencing. I will write, this is page one. This is how she starts the book off. I will write in this book that what no one who has happiness would dare to write. I will accuse the gods, especially the God who lives on the gray mountain. That is, I will tell all he has done to me from the very beginning as if I were making my complaint of him before a judge. But there is no judge between gods and men, and the God of the mountain will not answer me. So that's that's her whole goal with writing the book. And it's incredibly interesting, like you're saying. Like there are parts of the book I, I have a typical problem with first-person perspective in that I get thrown into a random person's head and I start off the book and I'm like, I better start liking them quick. Otherwise, you know, it's going to be a hard book. But like you said, she's writing this from the perspective far later down the book when she actually stumbles upon a temple later on and decides and, – and hears this story from a priest at the temple where she – it's actually – the story from the priest at the temple is the true myth that happens um, – historically and she hears it and it puts her as the one in the wrong not the gods and she goes like that's the last straw for her not only has her sister been taken away but now she has been judged as the one in the wrong how dare the gods make make it out to be like that and so she writes this whole novel as her accusation against the gods so it's it's a beautiful story but um yeah like daniel said incredible literary style very interesting 
Um, Daniel, what would you give the rating before we break out the theme? Of a one which would be not even worth renting from the library to read to a 10, which is this needs to be on your bookshelf because you need to read it at least five times in your lifetime. At least have it on it. I would give it a solid nine. Yeah, I I personally would give it. I think I'd give it a 10. I mean, it's especially thinking like I read this personally at a time when I was dealing with like some pretty intense suffering in my life. And it's although it's not a theological treatise or anything like that, the way that it presents um, the interaction between a human and God and how to properly think about that is it was a perspective that I never thought of before. The idea of how can they meet us face to face until we have faces wrestling with that and understanding like the limit of human capacity to properly relate to a God who is so much more infinite than us. That was that's what caught me off guard. And I know, Judah, you've read um, Lewis's other work around this time. Yeah. Um, Remind me of the name. A Grief Observed. Yes. About Lewis and his wife, Joy, and how she was diagnosed with cancer and then ended up dying in his wrestling. Right. That. How does that play into, you think, this book, which is yeah. dedicated to Joy? No, great question. Um, one area, as I was doing some research that really struck out to me, so I listened, I read the grief, A Grief Observed twice, phenomenal book by him. And there's a sort of area in the book as we get to the end, as we're starting to discuss theme here, that she's asking all these questions to the gods and not getting any answers. And that's that's one of the reasons for her accusations. How could I ask you all these blatant questions that, you know, if you're if you're these gods, you should have obvious answers to these questions. But something that Lewis posits in A Grief Observed is perhaps God doesn't answer us sometimes because the question we ask him is totally nonsensical, such as such as God, can you make a square circle? Now of course, uh, from a Christian perspective, God can do absolutely anything, but he can't beat himself in an arm wrestling competition, right? God can't do things that are nonsensical because God has ordered the universe in a way that it makes sense. Um, he can't counteract his own nature. That is his one limit, and that's not a limit. Um, so when, as, as this book progresses in some of these questions, you see her final presentation to the gods at the end where she just has this massive complaint and you see truly for the first time the questions posed in a real manner from her true personality. And you see that they are what what Lewis presents as mostly utter rubbish. They're not, they're not a logical question um, that's framed in an articulate manner. Instead, they're just like a child whining. Um, and that's sort of what he was getting at at the grief observed, not – not to reduce the pain of suffering at all, but just to say perhaps this is a reason why God doesn't answer us sometimes is because what we're saying is foolishness. So, yeah, I assume that we're going into the area of the podcast where spoilers are up yes. for grabs. Spoiler alert. So that, just throwing that out as the warning. Now let us proceed. A couple of questions that I came across in the book that I just would love your thoughts on throughout the book. Orval keeps on saying, why is it that 
the holy places are so dark. Like she just describes the holy places as dark. So whether it was Ungit's temple, even um, Cupid's house, Psyche couldn't see him. It was mm-hmm. always dark when he came to visit her. So how do how do you think that kind of even applies? Do you think that's a true principle in our world? Or do you think it's very different just in this world? I, You know, I can see elements of both. I think it's interesting that later on when um, Orville is ruling her kingdom as queen after the king passes away, there's the new priest and the fox and the new priest are closely related. And the new priest makes a lot of uh, modern adjustments to, um, to the temple and... Orville has this interaction with a lady who comes in there and is praying to the old statue that's in the temple. And she's like, why are you doing this? We have this incredible new idol right here. And the lady's like, yeah, that, that God doesn't get me. Um, it's too modern. Like, uh, the, the gods of old, that's, that's who I still worship. And in a way, that's kind of the discussion. Um, cause, uh, the new priest polishes the place up. It doesn't smell as much like blood, like, it's, it's very different than the way it used to be. It doesn't quite strike you with fear when you're inside of it. it. I think, in a way, the element of darkness is supposed to display the immense separation that should be had between the gods and the humans. I think that's sort of the idea. Just like Psyche is not allowed to see the god's face... When they're inside the temple of Ungit, it's very dark because there's supposed to be the idea that humans and the gods live in separate dimensions and the interactions between them are sacred and the gods are not supposed to be seen. Go ahead, Daniel. You have a thought. I was also going to say, I think it also, the darkness has to do with mystery because if you're in a dark room and there's things happening around you, it is a mystery of what's going on. Yeah. And... Like the whole thing of whether it's consuming or being loved in a cursed sacrifice upon the mountain, the priest is like, it's a great mystery to us how, but being consumed and being loved is very similar ideas, but it's a mystery. So I think that also plays into the whole thing of the supernatural world to us is a mystery because it is beyond our senses. Just as things in the dark, we can't see with our eyes. Yeah. Well, and also, I just thought of this. This connects to the greater point of the book, that how can they meet us face-to-face until we have faces? The characters don't have faces yet. And and by that, they have not they have not died and met the gods face-to-face. They don't have their new true identity, basically. So when they're on the earthly world, the gods cannot meet them because they have not become their greater selves yet they're still in their limited human form they don't have faces so um that's i think that's probably a reason why lewis emphasizes like psyche can't see this god yet because she has not received her true face so so daniel i have a question for you um at the end of the book, when Orville is with the fox in her visions, uh, she's accusing the gods um, and she's seeing all these things that are taking place. She asks him a question. Um, she says, are the gods just? And in response, he says, oh, no, child, what would become of us if they were? What are the implications of that statement, both for both for this book's world and our theological perspective? Um, so I think Lewis here is pointing out that God 
does not actually treat us the way we deserve. Mm. That would be justice is if we received exactly what we deserve. And if we received exactly what we deserve, we'd be wiped out, not having an opportunity to say anything for ourselves because our greatest actions would still condemn us. Right. So I think what Lewis is saying is that the gods, God in the real world, um, Mm -hmm. does not, do not treat people as they deserve. In fact, he treats them better than they deserve because they don't even deserve to live. Right. In the Christian perspective, God remains just and able to deal with sinful humans because of the sacrifice that God himself made in the son of God, Jesus Christ. Right. And so God maintains his justice because God turned on himself the punishment that was for man. He took on himself as he was in the form of man. Right. So I don't quite know if I still agree with um, Lewis by saying that God is unjust by letting us live, but I think there's definitely a nugget of truth in that. Yeah, I almost wonder if what he was trying to say is almost more, is God fair? Um, Because if so, God is absolutely not fair. (laughs) I would 100% agree with that. um, And I mean, there's a big difference between fairness and justice. That could be a whole discussion. But it is really interesting. It gets a little jumbled at the end because C.S. Lewis combines his Christian perspective very much so with this um, Roman ancient uh, perspective in that when Orville makes her accusation towards the gods, it's the gods, but then at the end, a supreme being, the god above all, makes his accusation against her, um, and that god seems much more akin to the Christian god than anything that would exist in Grecian or Roman ideology. So that part's very interesting. Um, But one part that I'd love to discuss as well, Daniel, is perhaps my favorite part of the book is when she makes her accusation against the gods, which is, it's not at the ending, but I would argue it's sort of the culmination of the whole book. And it's, that's when my socks got knocked off because she presents her whole argument, right? She has this book in her hand and she shows up and back on earth before she was having this vision, it looks like this beautiful tome full of rich argumentation. And then she shows up and it's described as like this fragmented, like, um, combination of like paper it's just it's like she looks down she's like wait this is my argumentation against the gods and she steps forward and she offers her accusation and it comes out as utter childish rubbish and the god's answer is absolutely incredible because she gives her whole thing she'll she says i'll not complain not now that you're blood drinkers and man eaters i'm past that enough said the judge There was utter silence all around me, and now for the first time I knew what I had been doing. While I was reading, it had once and again seemed strange to me that the reading took so long, for the book was a small one. Now I knew that I had been reading it over and over, perhaps a dozen times. I would have read it forever, quick as I could, starting the first word again, almost before the last was out of my mouth, if the judge had not stopped me. And the voice I read it in was strange to my ears. 
there was given to me a certainty that this at last was my real voice. There was silence in the dark assembly long enough for me to have read my book out yet again. At last the judge spoke. Are you answered? He said. Yes, said I. (laughs) That, man, that is just such a powerful declaration that the God, all he had to say was stop and let herself think for a moment. And she realizes what she was expressing and how foolish it seemed in light of the glory and perspective that she's gaining from this vision that he just asks, are you answered? And she says, oh, crap, yeah. <laughs> um, and then comes the next question that we'll discuss for the final right in the next chapter at the very beginning. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? Daniel, what does that mean? Oof. That's the question of the whole book. Yes, it is. And I don't know if we're going to get to the bottom of this. Mm. Like it's it's obviously in the title of the book, but it kind of it still rumbles around in my mind of what does it mean to have faces? Yeah. Is it that we've been putting on a mask our entire life and what others have seen of us is just not real. Very much like Orville wears a veil over her face and no one sees who she is after a certain point in the book, but she can see others, but others can't really see her. Mm -hmm. And then at this point, if I'm not mistaken, they took everything like her veil was removed. Yeah, she's standing there naked before them. Right. Completely exposed that they can see everything about her. And I think that has a lot to do with what it means to have faces is that we would be completely exposed to to them. that We're not hiding anything, even if we wanted to. I think until we're at that spot, God's not going to meet us when we're trying to put up a false front of who we are. It's once we're honest with ourselves of who we really are that God comes and speaks. Yeah. And we will never have the benefit on earth of completely understanding our true identity until we reach the afterlife. And forgive us if we're, if the discussion keeps getting conflated between the Christian view and theirs, we're not, uh, Daniel and I are not saying from a Christian perspective that we believe in a duplicit multiplicity of gods or anything akin to that. But Lewis is clearly writing from a Christian perspective and this illustration trying to, this is an illustration trying to express a truth that in a lot of ways can be more powerful than just a theological treatise trying to express the same truth. And what you're saying, Daniel, actually reminds me of a Bible verse um, in Scripture that says, Scripture is sharper than any double-edged sword from Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. It penetrates even to even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. I mean, that's that's the point of the book right there. Um, in a lot of ways for Lewis is that, like, until we get exposed before God, we're presenting a facade both to ourselves and everyone around us. And I think that's actually a very important point that she, like, as she was writing it, she was basically making a lie and believing it herself 
as she was mad at the gods and then started coming up with reasons to be mad at them and got madder because of those. Yeah. And she just built that resentment up towards the gods when a lot of it was her own fault. Yeah. She was the one who manipulated Psyche into revealing Ungat's son, the god of the mountain. And I think there is also the part of it of when we stand completely exposed before the god, we begin to see how great he is and how completely insignificant we are. Oh, yeah. And so that he talks to us who are mere mortals begins to be like, oh, I was completely out of my league. And that's the that's the incredible role that the reader gets to play is we almost in a way we get to play the role of uh, forgive the heresy, but we get to play the role of God in the way that we read this in that the entire time we get to see Orville's perspective and judge it for ourselves. And uh, I mean, we have, I have immense compassion on her, especially reading it the second time. Like you can see how she comes to these perspectives, but you also see sometimes her, the decisions that she makes in like um, threatening suicide if her sister doesn't do what she demands. Um, like, although that might be justified to Orville, the reader, you know, acts in repulsion. Like that's, that's a disgusting thing to do. Um, and we get to see in a lot of ways her true face while she doesn't. Uh, and so that just adds one other element that it's, it's so incredible. And then at the very end of the book, um, it is revealed that Orville in a lot of ways has become psyche through this transformation and this refining experience on earth. Uh, in that after this vision, she dies just a few days after, but she realizes I was in the wrong. I I was totally in the wrong um, the entire time. And uh, and through all that experience, she is made beautiful and she was made who she was truly meant to be. It's an absolutely awesome book, guys. I mean, you have to read it. I'm sorry for spoiling it. Just if 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 we spoiled it, go still read it. It's still worth it. <laughs> There's plenty of other tidbits and nuggets that Lewis puts in that if we were talking about them, it would be a three-hour podcast and oh, yeah. we still wouldn't get to the bottom of it. Worth the read. You can do it as I did it. Get an audiobook. Listen to it. Yep. Worth it. It is every bit of worth your time. All right, guys, thanks so much for tuning in for today's episode. This was Judah and Daniel, and we can't wait to catch you in the next one. See you there.